Hello everyone and welcome to Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. I'm Sophie Briarcliffe, I lead Foresight for Europe as part of Mars Wrigley's Global Foresight team. Now, as we continue through season three, we're taking you on a journey around the world, looking at the big trends that will shape human behavior in the future across different continents. Today, it's the turn of Europe, and I'm happy to be joined by two inspiring and forward-thinking guests who are going to help us explore a few elements of the future of Europe, focusing on two trends where Europe is really leading the charge globally, well-being and sustainability. But before we dive into the conversation, I've brought in Mars Wrigley's Human Intelligence Director for Europe to introduce this topic. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Sophie. I'd love for us to start with a little bit of context, particularly for any of our global listeners. What do you think is important to know for any non-Europeans as a setup to this conversation? That's a great question. I'd probably start with the fact that European culture is really entrenched in the history of the continent. And as Europeans, we're really fiercely proud of that. So Decades of growth and being a major global economic and political power have undoubtedly shaped the mindsets, living standards and behaviour across all European countries. But it does feel like we're a bit of an inflection point. By the end of this decade, China's set to become the biggest economy and India's likely to surpass the EU in the next 20 years. And both of those two things will have a big impact. That will have a huge impact on the future of Europe, but even more so because this economic and political power shift sits alongside a demographic shift, which will affect Europeans from a human perspective. Absolutely. So the world's population is expected to reach 8.5 billion in 2030 and 9.7 billion in 2050. But the EU's population that same time period is expected to fall by 5% to just over 420 million by 2050. But most significantly, the makeup of that population will also change. So the projected median age of the EU population will rise from 43.9 in 2020 to 48.2 by 2050, which means by 2050 there may be 135 dependent non-workers for every 100 workers in the EU. And this aging population will be a key issue in Europe as current levels of employment, healthcare and social care and retirement are likely to become unsustainable. And I think that's a really nice starting point for our conversation, thinking about how that context impacts and has really accelerated the huge drive towards health and well-being that we're seeing in Europe. So with that in mind, I'm going to say thank you very much to Olivia and introduce our guests. My name is Catherine Sly. I'm presently the Chief Growth Officer for Mars Wrigley. I've been in the food and drink business my whole career, spanning seven businesses from dairy right the way through to soft drinks, alcohol, food, and now snacks and treats. So I'm a committed foodie and definitely interested in all things European and the future of sustainability and wellness. I'm Trevor Davis. I'm a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. I'm also a futurist for the consumer goods industry, where I take a look at all things across business and technology. Before this life, I was a distinguished engineer with International Business Machines, IBM, and worked on a lot of topics with the consumer goods industry around sustainability, technology, etc., etc. I've been a few things in my life. We're extremely privileged to have you both with us today. Now, we're certainly seeing a top-down push from governments for European citizens to be more mindful of their health. But we're also seeing the well-being trend really coming from consumers from ground roots up. 
I'd love to hear your views about how you see these two coming together to drive change, or whether, indeed, they are pulling in the same direction. Well, that's a great question, um, Sophie, and I can definitely see a drive to both sustainability and health and wellness. Whether they're driving sort of in separate directions or, or the same, I'm not necessarily sure, but they're definitely very, very key vectors that everyone's talking about right now and that we have a responsibility as key companies that play on a global scale and specifically within Europe have to help consumers to make better choices in both those two areas. I definitely see an alignment to a certain extent between what consumers, particularly younger consumers, are looking for in terms of their health, mental health, physical health, its relationship with the natural environment, and what a lot of government policies are across Europe. I think the catch is in Europe is that it's not one place. It, it is many different countries. There is, through the European Union, a degree of alignment between policies in key areas of health and well-being and sustainability, but those have to be then translated into laws in individual countries, and, and often there are differences there. And of course, against this background, we have Brexit and the impact that that's had in terms of separating the UK from the rest of Europe. And there are other independence movements within the UK and across Europe. And I think those things are affecting the way that individual populations are thinking about this relationship between their own personal kind of safety, well-being and the broader issues of things like climate. That's so true. Fantastic point. One example of the top-down push is the HFSS high-fat salt sugar legislation, which will hit UK food brands next year. The regulation will prevent marketing and advertising of high-fat salt-sugar products being shown on TV before 9pm from 2022 and will limit product placement of HFSS products in stores. What impact do you envisage this having on consumer treating and snacking behaviour, Catherine? Well, I think it's uh, it's another interesting move by many of the governments, but specifically within the UK on HFSS. I think the fundamentals are that people are still going to choose to snack and treat themselves. I think that's just a, a fact of the way that we, um, with, we live our lives. So I think the underlying behaviour of snacking isn't going to fundamentally change. But I do think there are going to be some changes in the way that we uh, snack and treat ourselves in the choices that we make, but also in the occasions um, that we snack. So I think in many instances, you know, the HFSS sort of changes are going to change the way that people um, shop for their occasions. But the occasion I think still will hold true. But the everyday treating and snacking choices that consumers make, I think where the HFSS has got an impact on helping consumers make different choices around lower sugar and lower fats, I think that's going to have an impact on the way they do snack and treat and ultimately have a real impact on their, on their health. For some businesses uh, like ours, you know, at uh, Mars, we've got a portfolio of both chocolate, fruity confections and gum. And actually for a part of our business, the gum business, uh, which is sugar-free, that actually represents a real opportunity for us. There are many health benefits around chewing sugar-free gum. So HFSS in many ways presents opportunities for businesses, but I do think it will have an impact on consumers, choices that they make and the occasions that they choose to snack and treat and actually how they shop for them. It's really interesting because, as we know, 
people's definition of well-being has changed over time, hasn't it? People are now not just thinking about well-being as health, but more about what choices I make, what do I put into my body to make me feel good. Trevor, you touched on this earlier a little bit about how you feel that has changed and what well-being now encompasses. Could you say a bit more about how you perceive well-being these days and how that might change into the future? I think for me, the most important change I've seen in the last few years is that well-being has moved from just being about the body to encompass the mind. I think it's very difficult these days to separate out mental health from physical health. And I think particularly for Generation Z, the younger millennials, if you read the social media that they post, you can see that these two things are, are often hand in hand. I think if you look at it from a more scientific point of view, then I think there's a greater understanding of how what we eat and what we drink affects mood, our ability to concentrate. I think another change for me is the rise of politicised, with a little p, nutrition. The idea that what you eat is a reflection of your broader view of the world, and you can see this in terms of some of the brand choices that people are making. I think you make a really interesting point there, Trevor, around the science, um, because there's definitely been um, a move from people just thinking about health to thinking about wellness. It's completely open, open the aperture, I think, for uh, you know for consumers. And I think we're all talking about areas that we haven't talked about, like anxiety and the impact the pandemic has had on people's uh, mental health. But I think the important piece I just sort of double click on in the points you just made is about the science. And I think it really is critical that um, companies and brands behave responsibly and actually have real science at the heart of some of the claims that they're making because you're absolutely right there's a lot of influencers out on you know TikTok and Instagram that are making quite big claims but actually that can't be substantiated so I think as a responsible business we need to rely on the science to make some new claims that will actually help consumers address some of these areas and and ultimately derive competitive advantage from it and I know from my own personal experience of Mars that um, there is a very strong science base there. And I think a lot of the big kind of food and drink companies are much more scientific in their base than a lot of consumers are actually aware of. And I think that's a communication challenge. And if you think of it in terms of the kind of misinformation that we've had around COVID, again, how do you avoid that kind of situation when positioning yourself as a science-led business? I think it's great that you kind of recognise the level of care and attention and science that we put into the claims that we make and the flavanols is a well-known case study certainly within you know within Mars. I think that stretches not only just from the claims around health and well-being but sustainability and I think you touched at the beginning Sophie about the importance you know, of sustainability and the world that we really want you know to be tomorrow has to be sustainable because we're living well beyond the means of our single planet so I think in, in all that companies do and brands that they do they need to be absolutely responsible in how they project themselves and the dialogue that they have with consumers so that it is real, transparent, honest, and helps consumers ultimately make better choices. Absolutely. And so that's a lovely segue in for us to talk a little bit more about the sustainability side, as it really does feel like this is an area that Europe is pushing harder than any other nation across the world. 
So I think what we're seeing at the moment is that European citizens and, and global citizens are really starting to feel the impact of climate change on a personal level. And so they're wanting to take a bit more personal accountability and, and make small changes to their own habits to take a bit of control and feel like they are doing something to contribute, exactly as you said, Catherine. So with all the media coverage of floods and fires happening this summer, we've seen that one in three Britons now spontaneously mention climate change as the biggest problem facing the country. And so with the COP26 around the corner, 73% are saying that they can personally see the impacts in the UK and are really wanting that change and embracing that change, both from a governmental perspective, but also from a personal perspective, wanting to feel empowered to see what is going on, understand the transparent nature of products and be able to make informed choices as a result. So I would love to hear from you a little bit around what it means for FMCG companies to defend in the sustainability perspective versus to grow. So if FMCG companies are wanting to do what's expected from consumers, what does that mean versus if they were wanting to really take a leadership position in the area of sustainability, how does that show up for consumers? Yeah, no, I'm really happy to answer that question, Sophie. I think we've always talked about it, or I've certainly always talked it about sustainability. Do you want it to be a, a shield, you know, defence mechanism, or do you want it to be, you know, a sword, something that's actually going to help you drive, you know, competitive, uh, competitive advantage? I think all businesses and brands need to think about how you grow through making those sustainable claims uh, responsibly and acting responsibly in, in the world um, today. It's about doing, effectively, it's about doing the right thing and to help consumers ultimately make the choices about what they want um, to buy. And done really, really well and responsibly, I know it has a, a real positive impact on brand equity. I think just about France, Germany and Spain back in 2020, we know that the sustainability of uh, sustainable food and drink products actually grew by about 10%. So done really, really well, it can have a positive impact on uh, equity growth, profitability, and ultimately meet the needs of consumers because they're really looking to make those choices you know, in their lives. So I think we've got a real responsibility. And in many ways, actually, consumers actually trust companies more than they do governments right now. So I think there's a responsibility for companies to act and to be open and transparent about what they're doing to help consumers make better choices. Absolutely. It is a bit of a, a challenging environment for companies to lean into that space, though, because what we do know is that consumers aren't generally willing to pay more. So they might choose the product over another product, but really they're not wanting to pay a price premium for those more sustainable products. That's a really tricky situation for companies to lean into. What happens if sustainability never becomes profitable? And companies constantly have to take that money to make products more sustainable, to do things in different ways, out of their margin. Trevor, I'm going to come to you on that one first. I think this question of uh, will consumers pay extra for sustainability is, is a bit of a red herring, if I'm really honest. I think, first of all, it depends on the category. There are definitely categories where you can see that consumers will pay more for items which are genuinely more sustainable, better for the planet, particularly if those things are aligned with celebrities and influencers that they respect. I think the other thing as well is it 
kind of assumes that the cost of goods sales part of the equation cannot be influenced. We all know in this industry that our supply chains are, are relatively inefficient. None of us have really got supply chains that work as well as you know, the, the big automotive companies or maybe the big electronics companies. So there's a lot of scope to improve the costs that go into that equation. I, I think as well, we're ignoring that technology is going to change our ability to interact with our suppliers, interact with our retailers, interact with our consumers in ways that will change the value equation. And that in turn, I believe, will turn into greater profitability. We've got a very clear purpose that the world we want tomorrow really depends on how we do business today. We have a duty to the planet to be responsible as one of the key players in the globe today. And I think sustainability can't be seen as a profit drainer. It needs to be seen as a, as I taught earlier about sustainability being a sword as opposed to a shield. And the first thing is to make sure that we're actually deriving value from it by communicating it effectively through our branded propositions and purpose that will give competitive advantage and help brands grow. There are many, many elements of a brand's profitability. And then with the businesses, we need to make choices about where we put the value. So I see sustainability as a value driver, not as a profit drainer. And I think we have a responsibility to the world to do the right thing because the way that we do business today really depends on how we want the world to look for tomorrow. Catherine, it's great to hear that and I completely agree. If you look at the asset investment market, if you look at the capital markets, there's really been a, a seed change over the past 10, 12 years in terms of the value of assets that are under control of these companies that belong to businesses which have that sustainability purpose. So I'm seeing institutional investors, they're applying exclusionary screening, they're just eliminating companies in specific industries or in countries where they just don't think the sustainability action is particularly strong. There's a lot of what's called norm-based screening of investments going on. And they're also starting to see the potential for disruption of markets and societies as climate change in particular starts to have a bigger and bigger effect. Indeed. Thank you. I just wanted to come back to a point you mentioned there about competitive advantage, Catherine. Sustainability can be used as a, a point of competitive advantage, but do we ever see a world where cross-industry collaboration and doing something for the greater good rather than for competitive gains would be something that we would see playing out in the future? No, I can definitely see that, Sophie, because I think the companies have been really successful in doing that in the past. There are many points around cross-industry collaboration that have led to some really great solutions. So if I think about the collaboration with governments over nutritional labelling that's been been done for many, many years, if I think about the way that the alcohol business you know, has driven responsible drinking programmes, I can think of many, many, many more. I think one area where personally and from a business perspective, I think we'd value more actually collaboration across industry and with government, not only national but across Europe is recycling. 
it's a real issue for our planet in terms of the amount of plastic. And I think we all want to work within a circular economy. We all really, really want to design for circularity. But, you know, recycling is a a real issue for manufacturers in terms of the, the substrates that they actually use and understanding how they communicate them to consumers. And then consumers individually have got completely different recycling waste programs, you know, at home. So I just wanted to come back to something that Catherine mentioned there about the circular economy, because I think that's a really interesting one for where Europe will move to in the past. So today, as you say, Catherine, recycling is the big challenge where everyone's working so hard to fix that one element of it. But where we can see the future going is the economy won't be about consumption anymore. People will focus more on the use of products, the the function of products. And so people will not only recycle cycle, but they'll rent, they'll refill items, they'll reuse items, they'll repair items. So the the broader circular economy about how you continue use of products rather than just using it once and throwing it away will be really important. And then the next stage of that will be using waste byproducts to process them into new ingredients or new products or using versatile biomaterial for packaging. So I think the trajectory for where we can go with that idea of a circular economy is enormous. But as you say, the infrastructure has to be there in order to allow consumers to fully lean into it and play their part as well. Trevor, did you want to make any comments on the circular economy at all? I know that's a passion area of yours. It certainly is. I I have very mixed views about the circular economy. So I love the idea of circularity. And I think in the very long term, we're going to end up with that kind of vision of effectively a closed system of some sort. And I think, as Catherine has said, the infrastructure to enable that circular economy is extremely fragmented across Europe. In Northern Europe, you often have just like a a single set of policies around everything from curbside collection through to municipal collection. But then you come to the UK and there are hundreds and hundreds of different schemes. So I think that's kind of very challenging. And then you get kind of bizarre things like when I was a child, an electric vehicle used to deliver a recyclable kind of bottle full of milk to my house and then go away and come back and collect it a couple of days later. And that then used to go back into the system and get refilled. And it just feels to me like we we sort of took a, a long diversion away from that. And, and I think the next iteration of that will be kind of self-driving kind of delivery vehicles that will do parts of the circular economy that we find very difficult to do at the moment. I certainly take my bins out on a weekly basis and look at the amount of plastic and the elastic amount of cardboard that I've got in there. And I think to myself, there must be a better way. And I think companies have got a real duty to think about how do we really solve for one of the greatest barriers that we have, which is waste. Because we talk about sort of design for circularity, but in many instances we have to because we've only got one planet. And that's the way that I really think about it. We know we really have to design because we have got a closed system and that closed system is called the planet that we live on. But it is massively, massively difficult to really find solutions that are cost effective, to your point earlier, um, Sophie, and to really work and collaborate across industry to solve some of these issues, because we won't be able to do them just by ourselves. So I'd really call on companies to come together and governments to come together in order to put programs in place so that we can design for a better world.
I do agree with you. I think the leadership that I see out there at the moment is all coming from the private sector. And I think that's a very positive sign. And I do see collaborations that are starting to be quite effective. And if I do a compare and contrast, for instance, with America, I'd say the circular economy at the moment is not really very well understood or very well accepted in America, except maybe in California. And if you look in California, you can see the way that public funds are being diverted into various schemes that are aligned with what the private sector is doing. And I think that's the trick. It's to get public money and private investment properly aligned without overstepping that boundary to the point where you end up with problems of corruption and things of that nature. Absolutely. Coming back to a point you made earlier, Trevor, about making this convenient for people and that being a key unlocker for sustainability really taking off and and being something that consumers start to do. So we know that we live in a convenience culture these days. And so marrying up the idea of doing good for our planet and and how that makes you feel as a person alongside it being easy for you is absolutely something which will really impact the future of sustainability and, and how much that's embraced by consumers. On the flip side of that, what do you think are some of the greatest barriers to a sustainable future for Europe? We've touched a little bit on infrastructure. What about from a consumer perspective? Well, I think getting hooked on single issues from a consumer perspective may be one of the big barriers. I mean, we've had a few years where everybody's obsessed with plastics. Uh, I suspect we will move on to other single issue kind of concerns. The problem with that is that these are systemic problems. They're about fixing things that are inherently messy and complex. And it needs a kind of bricolage approach to do that. And that's not the way a lot of consumers approach their life. You know, some consumers, I suspect, would prefer a simple lie to a complex truth. And so we have to somehow unbundle all of this complexity through communication, through the way that we position our brands, through the way that we engage with influencers, uh, whether they are celebrity type influencers or influencers in the policy sense, to make this more accessible and more transparent for consumers. So to use the word that I've heard Catherine use a lot, so they can make really good choices because the last 50 or 60 years probably haven't been about making great choices by my generation, for instance. I, th- I think you make some really uh, nice points in there, Trevor, and i just pick up on one area when you talk about the language and communication to consumers, because it's something that we in companies are constantly trying to really understand what connects with consumers. Only yesterday I was having a conversation on Dove Galaxy, our premium chocolate brand, and we know we've got a very strong commitment, you know, Cocoa Sustainable for a Generation program. And we were having a dialogue with a number of people on the line about whether we should talk about sort of 100% sustainably sourced or 100% responsibly sourced. And it's interesting because consumers are sort of new in this space. They're all hungry to do the right thing, or many are hungry to do the right thing. But even the language that we use, we need to find ways of communicating this 
in a motivating and consistent and truthful way with consumers. So the language of communication for this new space or relatively new space, as you call it, is also quite challenging for businesses to make sure we're connecting with consumers in the right way. So that's something that we're also working on, not only doing the right thing by you know, sourcing you know, cocoa responsibly, but actually really thinking about how do we communicate these brand propositions in really compelling, clear language so that consumers understand it and they don't get confused. So I think that's something that all FMCGs or fast moving consumer goods companies are thinking about right now who've got a real drive towards you know doing the right thing and the responsible thing and being sustainable how do we communicate that that's a that's a real you know a really really interesting space for us and Catherine I think that challenge is going to get a little bit harder because I think when it comes to that word sustainability even the academics have a little bit of difficulty nailing it down you know what is it is it the UN Sustainable Development Goals? Is it just being kind of more responsible to the planet? Is it something to do with the triple bottom line accounting? Uh, Exactly what is it? And as sustainability moves on from this big debate about carbon and climate change to things like the, the state of nature, biodiversity, when it moves on to what's going to happen with water supplies around the world. Again, it's going to become a bit scary, which is probably not particularly motivating for many people. And it's also going to become quite complex. And it's interesting on that point to think about the combination of the facts and the language around the communication. We know that one way that governments and industry bodies are are calling for more accessible and more transparent information around the life cycle of a product is through eco-labeling. So putting something on pack a little bit like nutrition labeling to give you almost like a traffic light system of how has that product been sourced right from the beginning of its origin through to it landing up in the store. And so there is an estimate that by 2024 in Europe, we will see that eco-labeling on all products, but in a way which is standardised, science-based, and importantly, using that full life cycle analysis as the vehicle to getting towards that. Do you think that that will be something that will be embraced and used? Or is that just kind of more facts that people won't look at on pack? I think you raise a good uh, question, Sophie, there around carbon labelling. I know in Sweden very recently there was a pilot scheme that had labelling in place and actually consumers picked up products so they changed their behaviour 25% less polluting than they previously did. So consumers were actively making choices around what they picked up when they had that pilot carbon labelling scheme was in place. So I think we probably can say yes. The thing that would probably make it difficult for me is the amount of information and claims that start to appear actually on a product. So once we've got the nutrition on the front of pack and then we've got a pilot labelling, a carbon um, neutral labelling on pack, it's going to be really, really hard in the moment, you know, in those three seconds that you might have in a grocery store to take on board 
all that information. So I welcome it. You know, we've got a net neutral carbon commitment here at Mars. But I think we are going to think about how do we communicate things effectively to consumers to help them make those choices and make sure that they're understanding nutritional impact, helping drive their health and wellness, but also helping them understand the packaging is recyclable, whether you know the products are net neutral carbon. So I think it's going to be something that will make a difference because we've seen it make a difference in places like Sweden already. But I think consumers are going to have a lot of information coming at them in order to help them make their choices. I think for the studies that I've seen, you tend to get an initial change of behaviour and then it often will then bounce back to how people were behaving before. So I think the question for me is how do you ensure that that labelling change is translated into long-term behavioural change by consumers as opposed to just an initial reaction to something that's new on the box. The reason it goes back to the previous behaviour is that they just get bombarded with all of this stuff and they go, well, I'm just going to go back to what I used to have because that's maybe a little bit easier and it's what my mom used to buy. But from a government perspective, the EU has pledged that by 2050 it will be the first carbon neutral continent. So the EU is wanting to really lead the way globally from that perspective. So they're saying, you know, by 2050, we want to be an economy with net zero greenhouse gas emissions. And so when you have that sort of commitment and you want to be world leading in that sense, there's going to be change that comes top down and consumers will eventually be incentivized in some way because that will be the way, to your point, Trevor, to make that long-term trend. You either have to make it rewarding for consumers in some way or you have to make it so easy to be part of their daily life and that, you know, they change their habits in such a way that they make that change for the long term. So I think that there will be a significant role from governments, from the private sector and also from retailers to help breed that long-term trend because Otherwise, we're just not going to meet these commitments that governments and private companies are, are making. I think you're absolutely right. And I think we're about to enter a couple of decades of where government will be much more interventionist right across Europe. It will take different forms. But I've long been of the belief that you cannot completely solve the massive problems that we're facing through bottom-up action alone. There are so many infrastructural issues that require trillions of euros or pounds to address that can only really come from public finances. I just wanted to ask a little bit about the pandemic and how that accelerated things. So in Europe, the COVID pandemic really had quite a significant impact on our life. We experienced really long and intense lockdowns in Europe. What impact do you think that had on the sustainability and wellness drives? Because I think that people really started to feel what impact a fully-fledged climate crisis could bring to our daily lives and also start to consider their own well-being and immunity and, and how really they needed to be slightly more conscious of that for when these big events hit. I think the pandemic has been really fascinating, if that's maybe the appropriate word, because I think what it really has done, I think for a lot of people, is bring their personal safety, health and wellness really into focus. In a year or two, where at the same time they're seeing the world on fire, they're seeing droughts, 
mass migration, all of those things we associate with sustainable development kind of worldwide. So I think it, at a consumer level, what you saw was a resetting of the emotional and health and wellness goals that people had. You saw people suddenly going out and walking for an hour every day, keeping away from people, doing their shopping online. Suddenly they were able to browse in a more considered way maybe what they were going to buy before they hit that button. So I think what you've you've seen is the change of priorities. And, and I think these new routines that were developed during lockdown, on the whole, will benefit sustainability in the long term. And I think they will also, in the long term, benefit health and wellness. We've seen a lot of very wasteful activity around packaging, lots of stuff being delivered to home in cardboard. So we end up with cardboard shortages. Of course, these are short term. So I think that's important to kind of keep that in, in perspective. But I think the the new normal that people are really referring to is going to be one where there's a lot more attention to, quote, good, unquote, health and wellness and sustainability behaviours. What do you think is the right balance between using collective action for scale versus encouraging personal responsibility, both in the areas of sustainability and well-being. I think at heart I'm a big believer in collective action. Uh, I think just in the same way that large corporates have started to think in terms of multiple stakeholder groups and how do they get those multiple stakeholder groups' interests aligned, I think that's really the way we address particularly sustainability challenges for the planet. I think in terms of health and wellness, maybe the answer is slightly different. I think there's a lot we can do at a personal level that will have an absolutely profound impact. Just very simple things. If you look at the rise of mindfulness apps, actually has a lot of potential benefit for people as opposed to maybe routes that might lead to medication. In the same way, I think as more authoritative wearable devices come along, and by authoritative, I mean science-backed, reputable kind of businesses, we're going to see more personal measurement data on things like everything from blood sugar levels through to, who knows, potentially in the future, something to do with the, the microbiome. And those things will allow people to make choices in their personal sphere that at the moment are kind of outsourced to medical professionals. So I think maybe there's an, two different answers here. There's a collective need for the massive challenges around sustainability and maybe more on the personal side for health and wellness. Thank you so much today for such an engaging conversation. Can I ask you, what would be your hopes or your predictions for the future of Europe? One closing thought to leave us with. I guess what I would like to leave the listeners with is the idea that the youthful activism that we see, particularly around sustainability, but in other areas as well, is not going to turn into cynicism. This is my firm belief that that activism that leads to people like Greta Thunberg referring to politicians as just going blah, 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 
that is going to turn into the next generation of business leaders and leaders in government. And they are really going to pick up some of these threads around sustainability, health and wellness in a way that no previous generation has done. This podcast has all been about Europe and sustainability and the move to wellness. And I think the one thought that I'd leave you with is that I really want Europe to lead in these areas, to lead the way and for companies to collaborate you know, with government to make the changes that we want to see in the world. And I really want all FMCG companies with strong brands to help embed sustainability and wellness into their branded propositions so it makes a meaningful difference to people's lives. So I'm proud to be a Brit, I'm proud to be part of Europe and help leading this drive towards a world that is more sustainable and a world where people are healthier. A huge thank you to Trevor and Catherine for joining us and helping explore some really meaty topics. What really struck me as we unpicked some of the key issues that will shape Europe over the next decade is how the complexity that we're facing is going to significantly impact our future. As a collection of sovereign nations, the countries in Europe all have their own priorities when it comes to well-being and sustainability, with different problems to solve depending on their culture and their geopolitical outlook. However, as people begin to feel the effects of climate change and health scares on a personal level, they will increasingly look to collaboration across nations to really drive change. But the complexity doesn't just come from the infrastructure and governmental makeup. The terms sustainability and well-being in themselves are complex terms. And I really loved the discussion between Catherine and Trevor about the role of brands in making that simple for people and how that responsibility will grow over the coming years. But if I can leave you with one thought, it's about how we embrace that complexity in Europe, as that's not going to go away. But as leaders across industries see the interconnecting parts of the bigger picture and use our roles to create simplicity for consumers. Until next time, this is Sophie. Stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjarez, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. <laughs>